Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. We are reading Parents and Children, Chapter 3, Parents as Inspirers. Children must be born again into the life of intelligence. Parents owe a second birth to their children. Adolphe Monod... He was a French Protestant pastor, and he lived from 1802 to 1856, and he was one of the most eminent pastors of his time. And he published at least three three volumes, I think it was four or five of his sermons. And you said he was only 50 when he died? He was 54 when he died. He was 54 when he died. He published five volumes, so that's one volume for every 10 years of his life. And if you don't count when he was, you know, under 20. I, I'm going to count when he was under 20 because it just makes the math easier. Very true. But yeah, e- either lifespan wasn't as long back then or he died young. And I don't know which one it is. I would guess both. So he is talking here about the child owing to his mother a second birth. Where the first is into the natural, they're physically born, and the second is into the spiritual life of intelligence and moral sense. The the part that struck me, so I I read this on the uh, the Ambleside online, the modern day English, the modern day English. So I read I read this in the modern day English version because I was I was slightly confused. And what they pointed out is that the the first into the natural, that's pretty easy. The second into the spiritual life of the intelligence and moral sense. So when they talk about the spiritual life of the intelligence intelligence and moral sense, she's talking about morals as one of the things that children learn. So we're talking about spiritual sense that children learn from their parents. Children learn how to be intelligent, and then children also learn how to be moral from their parents. And while... Every child has a right to this birth and to a completer being at the hands of his parents. The child also owes it to his mother. So it's it's a, a circle in that the parents need to provide it, mm-hmm. but the child needs to claim it. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was interesting that, that she called it out as a right. Every child has a right to his birth, to this birth, and to completer being at the hands of his parents. It's not just that parents owe it to their children or that children are better off when this happens. No, it's that children have a right. We talk about the inalienable rights in our Constitution or Declaration of Independence. One of I the think three. it's the Declaration. Yeah, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The right to the pursuit of happiness or the right to life, liberty, life, liberty and, and the, the pursuit, pursuit of happiness. happiness. There we go. So we can add this second birth to that list of things that we as humans have a right to. She's talking about the children having a right to this. I wonder if looking at the Declaration of Independence as they were talking about adults, if they would not have included that. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Because they've already supposedly had this birth into a completer being. Right. I don't know. It might be assumed as part of the... As part of the three, the the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that at some point the child learns morals and grows up. So yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting that the children learn morals from their parents, and it's the right of the child to learn them. She says oftentimes 
they might and oftentimes do withhold this from their natural offspring. And while we could bring forward instances of good parents with bad sons and indifferent parents with earnest children and mm-hmm. say the qui bono, which is a Latin phrase of who profits by it, which means we don't have to do anything because the children will turn out how they turn out. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, well, mm, not really. That's not that's not how this is going to work. Right. So a lot of this chapter is talking about this what what the second birth is and and why we need to why we need to supply it for our children so that they can claim it. So the next section science supports this contention. Be a good mother to your son because great men have had good mothers is inspiring, stimulating, but is not to be received as a final word. For an appeal of irresistible urgency, we look to natural silence with her inductive methods. Though we're still waiting her last word, what she has already said is law and gospel for the believing parent. I thought it was interesting here that she talks about natural science, and science can't tell us everything. We're still waiting for her last word, but it can tell us something, and what science tells us, we need to listen. And she talks later about how each year by year there's more revelation and more revelation, and we've seen that massively especially since her time since the the turn of the century of the 1800s to the 1900s mm-hmm. it's absolutely exploded with especially technology and scientific discovery and- i'll say technology has exploded since the early 1900s but in the 1800s there was the the fields of natural sciences were just exploding um i looked up uh, there's a there's a wiki and I don't have it in front of me right now, but it was just a list of scientific discoveries. Albert Einstein wrote his theory of relativity in 1905. This book was first published in 1904, I believe, is the date at, on the beginning, which means since this is a collection of essays, these essays had been put out prior to that. But that was the theory of relativity. Einstein came along after all kinds of stuff. Mm. There was. Uh, you know, we discovered the atom. People dis- uh, discovered cellular structures. The sciences were exploding in the 1800s. And all kinds of new stuff was being discovered day by day. So where she's writing this, she's already seen science exploding. And it just continued to go from there. The The course we've been on for the last 200 years, two, 300 years of scientific discoveries and advancements is is utterly insane to think about what life was like 300 years ago versus what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, in my pocket, I hold a device that contains the whole human knowledge accumulated, and I can access it whenever I want. It's crazy. Yep. It's absolutely crazy. Also, just the fact that we get in a car and drive to somewhere. Time and distance have been compressed. Yeah. Oh, it's it's crazy. Anyway, so so she's at she's in the middle of this and, and she's saying science science can't tell us anything, but it can tell us something. And then she talks about the parable of Pandora's box. Which is a Greek myth about someone who opened this box that was full of stuff and released evils and sickness and many unspecified evils were released upon the world talking about how a woman in her heedlessness may let fly upon her offspring these thousands of ills. But there's also a glass of blessing standing by so that she can also 
bless her children and bring them forth in health and vigor, justice and mercy, truth and beauty, as opposed to all those ills. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, uh, again, looking at the modern day English version, they translated heedlessness as disregard. A woman may in her disregard let fly for her offspring these ills. So heedlessness, I didn't really have that in my headspace, but disregard. She, If she's not paying attention to what she's doing or if she's ignoring her children. and It's, it's the, the constant awareness of what's happening and what's going on. Mm-hmm. So this disregard and heedlessness that she's talking about, it almost seems like she's referencing back to what she talked about earlier in chapter 2 where she talks about the parents, the the busy parents occupied with many cares, awakes to find the authority he has failed to wield has dropped out of his hands, and a daughter is given over to the charge of a neighboring family, while father and mother hunt for rare prints. So these parents who disregard their children for the hunt for rare prints, they let fly upon her offspring a thousand ills. I think that can also be any parent who in any way disregards the high office of parenthood where where it's not a priority to them yeah i I would agree because so so what we're looking at is building on everything we talked about during chapter two Mm -hmm. we start off with this she's building everything onto everything at this point well and then she to continue this she follows up with but every good and perfect gift comes from god she says well yes but god uses men and women parents above all others as vehicles for the transmission of his gifts. Mm-hmm. So that that means we have the obligation, like she mentioned again in the previous chapter, to give those gifts to our children because mm-hmm. we are like God to our children. Right. That was interesting to me. But we're the vehicles for the transmission of his gifts. God uses the parents to give out spiritual gifts to the children or the glass of blessing standing by. So the the health and vigor, justice and mercy, truth and beauty, those are things that God transmits to children through parents. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking at where she's quoting from. Um, she's got two different Bible quotes in this next little section. The tablets of stone and, and tablets, uh, fleshy tablets of the children is referencing Ezekiel 36, where he God will take away the heart of stone and mm. give us a heart of flesh. And then talking about God showing mercy unto thousands, that's in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 34, Mm -hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and Nehemiah chapter 1, where he does promise his mercy and his love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Right. So there's, there's two parts of her statement here. When we perceive that God uses men and women, parents above all others, as vehicles for the transmission of his gifts... That's the first half. The second half is, and that it is in the keeping of his law that he is honored. So those those are the two the two things that, that she's talking about here. One, that parents are a conduit for gifts. And two, that we need to understand that when we keep God's law, God is honored by that. Mm-hmm. And so she goes on to talk about how uh, the law written upon tablets, it, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough to have an external law. We need that internalized. We need that inside of us to tell us what to do, not just outside of us. Because if there's anything I haven't, or if there's one thing I have learned as a parent, it's that me telling my children to do something or to correct a behavior, it doesn't fully land until they agree that that's a behavior that needs correcting. And they'll continue doing it. And and maybe they'll try and follow the rules when I'm around. But if they don't 
agree with what I'm telling them, they don't care. And I'm the same way. I think that's human nature. If you look at people not obeying speed limits, we speed unless there's a policeman nearby who will stop us and give us a ticket. So we need the law written on our hearts, not on a speed limit sign. It needs to be internalized. Yeah. And that's one of the things, that's one of the, the gifts that God uses parents to give, I think. She goes on to talk about how science and faith are interwoven together mm-hmm. and they're harmonized. And when they're harmonized, they, I don't, hmm, I, I don't want to just keep reading what she says again. Well, let's do it because she, she has, she has a good way of saying things, but his commandment is exceeding broad. It becomes broader year by year with every revelation of science. And we add need gird up the loins of our mind to keep pace with this current revelation. We shall be at pains too to keep ourselves in that attitude of expectant attention, wherein we shall be enabled to perceive the unity and continuity of this revelation with that of the written word of God. So we talked about the revelation of science a little bit earlier, and she was living in an age where technology was increasing as rapidly as anything else. During her lifetime, they went from driving horses and buggies to driving cars. Hmm. So distance compressed during her lifetime. That's true. A couple of years after the publishing of this collection, uh, the, the Wright brothers flew the first plane. It wasn't the first plane. It was the first self-propelled plane. And shortly thereafter, aviation became a thing. Like she's, she's living on the forefront of technology. And so as she's looking at this revelation of science... She's saying we we have to keep up with scientific thinking, not to turn us away from God, but to bring us closer to him. The more science we learn, the more we learn about the world around us, the more in awe of God we can be. And the more we learn about the world around us, the better we can live in harmony with it. Mm -hmm. The, The better we can use the natural resources around us and not destroy the planet. So how does this happen? What are the processes and methods of the second birth? which the child claims at the hands of his parents. Again, she quotes the Bible in Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And stating that this is not only a a promise, but also something that the author has arrived at by deductive processes. This is something that he saw again and again Mm -hmm. and wrote it down. Yeah. Which is not something I've ever thought of before. I've always thought of it more as a promise where, hey, by the way, if you do this, then this will happen. But it's no, hey, by the way, I've seen. I've seen this happen. I've seen many this times. happen time and time again. And while sometimes it, it doesn't, there are exceptions, but those exceptions prove the rule. Mm-hmm. But even taking it from the Bible, we don't stop asking why. We have to keep asking, why is this so? Mm hmm. Why is this what happens? And we can't just be satisfied with, oh, it's because that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. We have to actually keep looking. And as she keeps looking, she turns back to science and to the the sciences of the day. Dr. Maudsley was a psychiatrist who lived from 1835 to 1918. And he wrote a couple of psychiatric books, specifically physiology and the pathology of the mind. She talks about what he thinks as far as science and the mind and how children learn and grow. So I think it's interesting. She's talking about two different births here. And Dr. Maudsley on heredity, it sounds like Maudsley is 
attributing a lot of the second birth to the first birth, Mm. i.e. who your parents are, where you grew up, what the culture is. That's what will dictate who you become and how you have the second birth. Right. And this is something that we see right now in American politics taking a huge foothold. And it's something that we see on college campuses right now is the belief of intersectionality and identity politics, where your views and your thoughts are only as good as your uh, relative minority category. So the more groups that you can find yourself in, the, the more repression that you've experienced or your group has experienced during your lifetime, the more valid your words are. So as a straight white man, my words mean nothing because I am a part of the least repressed group of human beings ever in recorded history, at least recorded Western history. We straight white men run things and have run things. Women have not. Black women have not. And so the more repression groups you can add behind your name, the more claim your voice has. And it seems like that's kind of where Dr. Maudsley is going here, where who you are is based entirely on who you physically identify with or culturally identify with. Mm-hmm. Who your mother and father yeah. are, who your grandfather and grandmother are. So the next the next section, the disposition and character is, if her, she says, if heredity means so much, what remains for the parents to do but to enable him to work out his own salvation? Well, and this is something that I've noticed her doing is she will quote somebody and talk about what they say and then go, oh, yeah, I don't really <laughs> agree with him. Yeah. And so it's always hard for me as I'm reading. I'm going, okay, 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 wait, whoa, you don't. You, you disagree with this. You're quoting it to make a contrast. Right. I think what helped me with that is, uh, especially with this chapter, um, you did the recording for the reading, and I I edited that, and then I listened to it. I downloaded our own podcast, so extra download for us. <laughs> but then I listened to it, and I think I listened to it probably four or five times at you know time and a half or 1.75 speed, so it was nice and quick. So it didn't take me long to read through this or listen through this chapter several times, but it gave me uh, an overall feeling of where she's going with her thoughts. And it gave me an overall a feeling of the outline. So when she was starting to dive into these quotes that she's later going to say something against or, or she's going to, to disagree with, I kind of knew even reading them like, okay, so this is this is a section that she's going to use to prove a different point. Gotcha. So I thought that was helpful. So in the future, I think that's what I'm going to do is I'll try and skim as quickly as I can or listen to you read it. Just to get the overall Yeah, gist. just to get the overall feeling before I try and dive in and start finding out what she's really talking about. But yeah, so so she, she clearly disagrees with the ideas of... Uh, intersectionality and identity politics she she disagrees partially it it is a it is the truth but not the whole truth you're right where the child does bring with him into the world this disposition not character because dr monsley was saying that character is given by virtue of inheritance brave timid generous selfish prudent reckless etc and that that character is a part of him and who it is and influences him and she's saying well not really. He brings a disposition in and it has tendencies. The The person has tendencies which can be strengthened or diverted or repressed, but it's not the character. His character, the efflorescence of the man wherein the fruit of his life is a preparing, is original disposition, 
modified, directed, expanded by education, by circumstances, self-control, self-culture, and above all, by the supreme agency of the Holy Ghost. So there is a disposition, a, a natural part of you, but that can be modified very much so by all of these different things. And you're not stuck with your original tendencies, your original disposition. Right. And that's where parents come in. It's the parent's job to help the child grow and learn. Mm-hmm. And it's the parent's job to to modify, direct, expand by education and circumstances and to teach that self-control and self-culture. Well, and I liked her use of the word efflorescence, which I had to look up. It's the action or process of developing and unfolding as if coming into flower. Mm-hmm. It's It's a gradual thing where it opens up. And so it's not a one-stop shop, wham, bam, you're done. It's it's a continual process. Mm-hmm. And with kids, that's oh so true. Because every day we're dealing with the same things over and over again. And then at some point, I know at some point we look back and go, oh yeah, we used to deal with those things a lot. Yeah. And then we don't anymore. Uh, I mean... Uh, a physical example of this is we've been potty training our uh, middle child right now. Abigail has, over the summer, we were working not really hard, but it was a thing that we wanted her to do. And man, it was rough because she she wanted to wear underwear. She wanted to not wear a diaper, but she didn't know how to control her body. And I, I don't know when it happened, but sometime during all of that hard work, something clicked and something we did worked and she figured it out and now she rarely has accidents. Yep. And so it was something that we were working at and working at, and there was no progress and no progress. And then all of a sudden, it hasn't been an issue for a while. I, I don't remember it changing. I just know that it's not an issue anymore. It's hard to pinpoint. When you look back, you can sometimes pinpoint it. But yeah. as it's happening, it just kind of happens. Yeah. Well, I, something I know we talked about earlier, too, where where the children are growing and they're developing and they're learning new things. And when you're in the middle of the situation, it's hard to step back and look at how children are growing day by day. But year over year, you can definitely tell the difference. Yeah. Or when you talk to people who only see your children once a week or once a month or once in a blue moon, they'll talk to you and they'll be like, man, the last time I talked to you, your children were doing this. And I know that's a conversation we have with your parents is they'll they'll come in and, and we see we see Crystal's parents, I don't know. Once every couple of months. And the things they'll tell us are, are, you know, they'll say things like, man, the last time I was here, they they were having these issues and you were working on that. And I don't see those at all. And we'll go, oh, yeah, we were working on that. Yay, memory. That was a thing. Yeah, our memories are shot. So how is this great work of character making the single effectual labor possible to human beings to be carried on? So instead of starting with a psychologist, we need to start at the physiological level, the actual cells of our body. How does this tangibly work? We don't start at the first floor. We start at the foundation. Yeah, the uh, the architectural engineer in me had a field day with this, with this statement. It took me a minute to figure it out because most of my work has been done in New Mexico and Texas where we don't have basements. The first floor, that's the bottom. That's where you start. If she had said like, who would begin to build with the second floor? I'd have been like, oh yeah, totally. Why would you start with the second floor? That'd be that'd be really dumb. But no, she says first floor. The first floor is the bottom floor. 
So she's talking about <laughs> the brain anyway. and how the actual physical brain is interlinked with the mind and the thought, how it's the organ of the spiritual part where it registers the thoughts and the movements and the feelings, whether they're conscious or unconscious. And the the mind is inseparable from the quickening spirit. And how this behavior, how the behavior of the gray nerve substance of the cerebrum affords us a possible key to the certitude and system in our attempts of education. And how it can help form character. How when when we do things, our brain changes. Mm-hmm. And she uses Dr. Monsley again to to talk about this. This is an entire quote from Dr. Monsley's work about the structural effects of particular life experiences. Yeah, and I don't have much to say about this whole quote. The only thing is that the takeaway I got is that our life experiences shape us. One of the hallmarks of a Charlotte Mason education is habits and habit training, and Mm. that is evident here. The more easy, the more often it has been repeated. So doing something again and again physically makes it easier with your brain where it modifies the neural pathways to know how to do something much like practicing an instrument exactly like practicing an instrument or playing video games it's hard at first you have to you have to physically consciously think about what you're doing yeah how you're forming a letter how you're playing a note Mm-hmm. How you're pushing the buttons. What muscles you need to be using to do those specific things that need to happen. And then once you've done it over and over and over again, you say, oh, the note written on this piece of paper equals this note on the piano or yeah. the instrument. I was thinking about it. Uh, it hit me just now. I said video games and I was thinking of it as kind of a, a joke. Ah, video games. Yeah. No, but but we were sitting down with the kids and introducing them to Super Mario Bros., the old NES classic and crystal and i were we're we're fiddling around a bit with it and you know we're making it through a couple levels here and there and we're rusty as all get out but then we gave the controllers to the kids and it was you have to push a button to make him go look at the controller put your thumb on it look up hit the button he goes and well we moved Mm. and then and then okay i need to jump now find the jump button look up push the jump button Oh, but he wasn't moving at the time. How do I make him move? And so, so they were they were going. They had to be going through that process of learning it, and it it was almost painful for me to watch because I wanted to just take the controller from them and do it myself and be like, see, this is how you do it. Do it this way. But they have to learn. But they have to learn it. And you know, maybe video games won't be a part of their life, and that's probably not a bad thing. But maybe it will be, and maybe it is a good thing. But regardless, whatever it is, that's the that's the beginning. And that's how you learn anything. Yeah. He's also doing handwriting. He's learning cursive. Mm-hmm. And you can see as he's doing it the first day, it's not very good. The next day is better. And then when he goes back as a review a couple days down the road, as the book has has him reviewing, it's even better. Mm -hmm. And he can see that. He Mm -hmm. can see how he's improving. And it's not even that he's been practicing the same letter over and over again. No, it's it's just that that motion is becoming more natural more natural yeah so repetition and habits are hugely important and i and this comes again to the nature versus nurture 
uh, debate how much is your nature, how much you're inborn with, Mm -hmm. and how much things that happen around you affect who you are. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, he is talking about how your nurture, the, the particular life experiences that you have affect your character, mm-hmm. your contentment, your melancholy, your cowardice, your bravery, even moral feeling. So he's he's saying, yeah. yes, they, they do affect you as well. And they do. And they do. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I, I categorized people by, by how much or little they had to study. And you had the, the super ridiculously smart people that never studied and got straight A's all the time. Set the curve. They set the curve without ever cracking a book. And then you had the the smart people who they were a part of that group that set the curve, but man, they worked hard to do it. Then you had the people that worked hard to, to learn things and, and they, they passed, they did well. They, they, you know, they got some A's and some B's. And then there were the rest of us that we worked our butts off and we got passing grades. And I was happy when I would get a C minus because I knew that was a passing grade and I was okay with that because I knew that I was not in that upper echelon of intelligentsia. I was a little bit lower on the ladder. And that's that's heredity, I think. There, there's, there are, there's pieces of that that are heredity. Well, and that goes back to a conversation you overheard in Los Alamos when we were living in oh, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. At a McDonald's. Yeah, I was at a McDonald's. Uh, we were doing some work up there. And so I just stopped at a McDonald's to get some food. And there was a family in front of me. Uh, parents and then two high school-ish girls and the high school girls were having a conversation and an argument not about where they were going to go to college not about where they were going to go to grad school but what what doctoral program they were going to be a part of and their parents were a part of the discussion being like yeah yeah harvard's good i mean yale is good too and and you know i don't know caltech is is also really good they have a better doctoral program and the girls were like they were getting into it about where they were going to get their doctorate I'm sorry. When I was in high school, I barely, barely thought about high school. So, much less college. Much less college. I and and I really hope I never have to go get a graduate degree because I really don't want to go back to school. But these were kids who were born from hyper intelligent parents who spoke to their children hyper intelligently, and they were surrounded by hyper intelligent people. Because if you don't know, Los Alamos is the hotbed for hyper-intelligent people still. That's where the uh, atom bomb was developed uh, during the... the it was a community specifically 30s and 40s. built for yeah. science, scient, uh, scientists and their families. Mm-hmm. And it has since opened up to, I guess, the public, quote-unquote, but it's... But man, if you're not a part of the hyper-intelligent that were transported there originally you don't fit i didn't fit i felt awkward anytime i was there even walking around the schools and stuff i was intimidated just by high school students and how smart they were like well i graduated from college but holy cow so yeah i mean heredity is a is a big thing but then how much of that is heredity and how much of it is the fact that they lived in a hyper intelligent hotbed how much of it is nurture how, how much m- is it how yeah. how they're spoken to yeah. So again, it's a little bit of both. It's not that one or the other is the sole thing and that if you were born to highfalutin parents, then you're good to go and your parents can do whatever they want and you'll be fine because you'll end up like 
King Lear's kids. But it's also not quite true that if you're born to uh, to parents of slightly lower intelligence, you're probably not going to be in the hyper intelligent crowd. Anyway, uh, so she moves she moves on from here. Our age has acquired a great educational charter. So based on this and everything we know, that yes, nature, yes, nurture, both of these things are important, and we know that it's a it's a chemical thing, it's a physiological thing that we have to learn, we have to practice doing things. Well, here we have sketched out a magnificent educational charter. Therefore, and this is me paraphrasing, therefore, this is why we need to educate our children. Because they need to learn stuff. And we have the opportunity to do this. Well, and not only do we have the opportunity to do this, our children have the right to have this done. Which means we have the responsibility to it also. It's our responsibility. Because again, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, every child has a right. The child must owe it to his mother that second birth. It's our responsibility to provide this for our children. So one of the things that's interesting here, um, talking about how Dr. Maudsley has spoken and published his works and how the science, the science community believes them, but we as the modern or as public society go on after our own use and want as if nothing has been said. And I, I, that struck me as, as the scientific findings put forth these things Mm -hmm. And yet, in practical matters, these new findings are ignored. Yeah. And we can see that, especially in education. I mean, we're, we're diving into education and that, that world now, as our oldest is six. And we're finding that there's, there's study after study that says the, the academic studies don't need to start early. Mm-hmm. They don't need to start sitting down at desks. They don't need to be doing this, that, and the other. And yet that's what's being pushed in society to start your children at uh, the public preschools and daycares and kindergartens. And, and to these, get them reading as soon as possible. To get them reading as soon as possible and to, to do all of these things. And it's being proven, scientifically proven to be detrimental. Yep. And yet it continues to be pushed. Yeah. So... It was interesting that that even in her time, those scientific findings were partially disregarded. Yeah, and we we definitely have a we have a strong history of disregarding scientific findings when it comes to education. Like you're talking about, we were finding out that sending children to school earlier doesn't help them, and so the pressures are put on parents to send their children to school earlier by whatever, and it's not working well. So what do we do? Well, we say, well, that wasn't working out. How do we fix this? Well, we must just need to send them to school earlier. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get them in school earlier because that's going to help it. And, man, we're spending all of this time in school and, and the kids are, like, outside at recess. We need to make their grades better. They need to come inside so we can study more. Their grades don't improve. Oh, no. How do we How do we make this better? Less recess. More studying. That's clearly the answer. And so you cut recess even more and you cut programs like home economics and shop class and other such things and scores continue to decline. And so what's the answer? 
more studying, more time sitting at the desk. We got to do more of that because clearly it's not working well enough. But we lose sight of, right, seemingly the, the school systems have lost sight of the studies that have gone on that starting earlier is not better. Playing outside less is not better. Not learning how to work with your hands, that's not better. Not learning how to cook, that's not better. You need a wide range of education, and you need to go outside and play around. Which is why we choose homeschooling, to have this opportunity, and which is why we specifically choose Charlotte Mason, because she advocates for all of these things. For sending our children outside. The other instance that just popped into my head was the actual physical time of things, where high school and and looking at high schoolers bodies teenage bodies where they are like studies have shown that they don't go to sleep early because that's the way their their brain is changing Mm -hmm. and they need to sleep in because that's the way their brain is changing and yet school starts at depending on where you're at seven eight something like that my high school started at 7 17 in the morning and there is a necessity for that in that the ch- we got out at one fifty five, which gives time for students to work, gives time for extracurricular activities. Homework. Homework, all of these things. But at the same time, it is ignoring the science that says teenagers need their sleep. And it happens starting later in the night and going mm-hmm. longer into the morning. Yeah, we talked about being night owls earlier and how we're excited for our children to hit that time. We're excited because it's a natural phenomenon that our children are all of a sudden going to need to stay up late. And wake up late. I can remember when I was in high school, I literally did that. I would stay up until one or two or three at night. And a lot of that time was just spent reading, reading books, mostly books of my own choosing. But I also read school books at that time because I knew that I'd be awake and in my room. I would build models and I I did a lot of stuff late at night. And I still find that late at night, I do lots of stuff. So let's run over the charter of our liberties as Doctor has summed them up in the passage quoted above. Some articles of this chapter, and we, she's talking about the physical basis of memory, where even tiny children, and she calls them persons. The wide-eyed babe stretches his little person and talks about the sights of order, neatness, beauty. The sounds are musical and soft, tender and joyous. The nostrils sniff only delicate purity and sweetness, which I'm not sure what smell that is, but delicate purity and sweetness is Poop. interesting. That is not <laughs> delicate. Hey, there have been a couple delicate ones. No. <laughs> I'm glad you changed them then. It has been rank. Recently, yes. We well, have we have three. Well, I guess two now. We have two in diapers. Yeah. It was three for over a year. That's a lot. It was a lot of diapers. So many diapers. In case you don't know, children or parents of young children talk about poop a lot. Yeah, it's kind of a thing. They describe the poop. They describe the smells of poop. They talk about <laughs> dealing with poop. <laughs> yeah, at our, last, at our last doctor's appointment, she asked us how things were going with the twins. Like, oh, yeah, they're great. You know. Lily's poop is smelling really bad lately. Oh, what's the color like? How does it smell? When did it start smelling? And what's the consistency? What's the consistency of it? We had a conversation all about poop. And then the the pediatrician looked at us and was like, 
It's only in the world of small children that we can have this conversation and we're all being perfectly serious about it. And it's perfectly normal. And it's perfectly normal. And we had a moment of self-reflection with her going, uh. So they're supposed to sniff delicate purity and sweetness. And these memories are ingrained, engraven on the unthinking brain. And when life is ordered on these lines of these first pure and tender memories, life is good. Life is life is beautiful. Life is mm-hmm. wonderful. And it starts at these very tender young ages with these unconscious memories. So what can the parents do? What can the parents settle for the future man in this early childhood? Well, hold on. No. No, going back to... Uh... Memories have a a certain power of accretion, where there are some others of a like kind gather, and all the life is ordered on the lines of those first pure and tender memories. I think that's also true as you get older. Um, I think about the the books and stories that I like to read now. Well, when I was first learning how to read, and and, uh, not learning how to read, but learning how to enjoy the written word, I enjoyed Star Wars books. I enjoyed the the Redwall series books. I enjoyed fantasy and science fiction. And still to this day, if I'm going to sit down and read a book for pleasure, I'm going to find a sci-fi fantasy book to read. And kind of the more fantastical, the better. And I, that's, that's a part of who I am. Uh, my guess is reading this stuff, that's because that's what I, that's what I trained myself to read on. And those were, those are some of my early memories of reading are reading the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid and reading Star Wars. and But yeah, uh, she she goes on to talk about, uh, are there children who do not wonder or revere or care for fairy tales or think wise child thoughts? Perhaps there are not. But if there are, it is because the fertilizing pollen grain has never been conveyed to the ovule waiting for it in the child's soul. There are people who don't like sci-fi fantasy. There are people that don't like poetry. There are people that that uh, don't enjoy, I don't know, good movies. And and why are, why is that? Because they didn't learn it as a kid. The foundation wasn't there. Yeah. I I don't I am not a fan of poetry. I'm and I'm either. I'm having to force myself to read the poetry and to read the read that kind of stuff to the kids so that they don't turn out like me where they don't like poetry. Right. And I, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't understand the draw. I don't understand what they're saying. I just, I don't get it. I wrote a poem for a girl when I was in high school. That's the extent of my experience with poetry. But even then, the only part of poetry that I liked was making sure that the meter and the rhyme were correct and that everything was technically sound. I like haikus. They were really short. They didn't have to rhyme. They just had to have the right amount of syllables. And I'm really glad you didn't just say a haiku off the cuff. No, there was a gal I worked with. She was an architect, and she was really into haikus. And whenever anybody had a birthday, we would send around a happy birthday card, and everybody would sign their name and and write something fun, and she would always write a haiku. That's kind of cool. It was, but it was really cool. It was her thing, and she really liked them, and, and she came up with cool stuff. And so anytime you'd get a birthday card that came around, you'd find hers in it because she prepared for these things. 
Hmm. She would be one of the first people to get the card and write her haiku in there because she knew that she needed some space. Otherwise, it would be taken up. Otherwise, it would be taken up. So she needed space to get her haiku to look right and other people can fill in around. So, no, there, there are people that really appreciate haikus and poetry and rhyme and verse. And that's great. And I hope for our children that they can have a greater appreciation for that than I do. Yes, I as well. So is this where the quote from your book it comes is. in? It is. This is where I, when I was growing up, I, I read Madeline L. Engel. And in A Ring of Endless Light, there's there's two characters talking about how they are able to communicate with dolphins, kind of an ESP telepathic way of communicating with dolphins. And the scientific, uh, the scientific character um, was talking about how it's easier for her with a writer's poet's mind to communicate. And I, I pulled the quote here. I'm a scientist, not a poet. Even when I was a kid, I read Scientific American, not fairy tales. My academic parents didn't encourage fairy tales. And I think it was my loss. You did read fairy tales, didn't you? Fairy tales, fantasies. And you communicate with dolphins. Don't you see that it's a bit humiliating for me to have my dolphins come more quickly and respond more fully to you than me? And that is from A Ring of Endless Light, where fantasy is a necessary part of seeing the world. And fairy tales are a way of seeing the world. And that foundation is being laid right now. It is. It very much is. So now we can move on. So well, she, she goes on to this list of things that is being laid. These are some of the things that his parents may settle for the future man, even in his early childhood. And I'm just going to read this list because it, it's good. His definite ideas upon particular subjects, as for example, his relations with other people. His habits of neatness or disorder, of punctuality or moderation. His general modes of thought, as affected by altruism or egoism his consequent modes of feeling and action, his objects of thought, the small affairs of daily life, the natural world, the operations or the productions of the human mind, the ways of God with men, his distinguishing talent, music, eloquence, invention, his disposition or tone of character as it shows itself in and affects his family and other close relations in life, reserved or frank, morose or genial, melancholy or cheerful, cowardly or brave and it's very convicting to read through this list and see that these things are formed and founded in these early years and it comes from what we do because children are sponges Mm -hmm. and they what they see they do what they learn they do and so it comes down to us to change if need be these things for ourselves Mm -hmm. so that they start with a good foundation. I will say though, as I read through this list, we were talking earlier about cleanliness and picking up and how Crystal and I live in a state of perpetual mess. There's typically stuff. Clutter. Clutter. Thank you. We live in a state of perpetual clutter and that's how we live life. Even when we uh, go, when we travel, we find ourselves in a hotel room, we open our suitcase, and bleh, there's clutter. It explodes. It explodes. Even if I go to a hotel room all by myself, 
with nothing but the clothes on my back and a change of clothes. The instant I walk into the hotel room, blah, there's clutter everywhere. And then I start packing it up at the end of the day. I'm like, how did this happen? I have five articles of clothing. And yet they're everywhere. And then I think about my mother. Well, my mother is about as tidy and neat a person as possible. And her house has nary a speck of dust because she works herself. She, she works at it. She makes sure that the dishes are clean. The floors are swept. The carpets are vacuumed. The, everything is picked up. Beds are made. I grew up with that. That was my house. That was my job. I was a part of that cycle of keep everything clean all the time. And yet I now live in a state of perpetual clutter. So it's important. Yes, it's good. And we need to help our children, but our children are our people. Well, and, and we need to provide those sites of order, neatness and beauty that the young child will see first. Yeah. So uh, this list is very important and, and it's our responsibility and our job to create the best environment for our children so that these things will be best in their minds and, and so that they'll have a good foundation. At the same time, I don't think it's good to put so much pressure on us as parents because that can start us in a downward spiral of self-doubt. Well, and I don't think that's where she's going with it. I don't think so either. I, I think I think it's a matter of uh, know better, do better. Yeah. Where as you're learning and as you're growing and as you you as a parent and as you as a, an adult a person develop, you will learn to do better. Yeah. And you can learn how to uh, raise your children better. That's something we skipped it. And I'm remembering now that we skipped it. That's something she talks about. Uh, the the great educational charter backing up to backing up a page or so she equates this great educational charter to the way that christians lived in the early church where they lived a fervor of enthusiasm where they expected the coming of christ every day and how can a man have the patience to buy and sell and get gain had it been revealed to him that he was able to paint the greatest picture ever how how could they have the wherewithal to sit and do this mm -hmm. when they know what's out there and what's available to them? I.e., that should be our reaction to learning these things is, oh, man, my child is going to learn these things. My reaction is that I'm going to do them because, well, because I'm now filled with a fervor and a, and a desire for my kids. So... I think you're right. I think that's where she's coming with us. Not from a stand not from a place of of guilt or putting things on parents, but a place of inspiration. She's trying to inspire us to be inspirers for our children. We are sitting down on Sunday night, the night that we were going to release episode three discussion. And we went to edit it and found out that there were some technical difficulties. And my part was not good. It was all garbled and jumbled and not usable. So we are sitting down again to re-record the discussion for chapter three. So you get our second take. And hopefully we can do a good job. And hopefully we can actually recreate what we talked about because I thought it was pretty good. 
or at least I thought it was. We'll <laughs> on, see. On first speak, it was it it felt good. But I've we'll quoted out. something and could not find it, and then I found it. So I have the book beside me now. There you go. You found you got something going for you. So we'll see if we even get to that section if that becomes a part of our conversation again. Uh, we'll find out. I honestly I don't remember much of what we talked about. It was late. It was. We it are was night late. owls, and so we stay up late to do this, and unfortunately wake up early as well because small children. Yeah. Memory is not quite what it used to be. That's how life goes in our house. But we're, we love staying up late. We're both really looking forward to when our children are a little bit older and are also night owls. Because I remember when I was in high school, I, I stayed up late and I woke up late. So I'm excited for our children to get to that point. That will be life in our house. It's going to be amazing. Noon to midnight. <laughs> I'm okay with that. This is chapter three of Parents and Children, Parents as Inspirers. 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 It's not really a word that you use nowadays. In parents. Parents as a source of inspiration. Inspiring parents. Sounds like aspiring parents. Aspiring parents. <laughs> we want to be parents. Oh, wait. She already told us that if we have children, we are parents. Dignabbit. But I don't want to be a parent anymore. <laughs> the uh, the duty of parenthood rests upon you. Where is it? It rests with you, parents of young children. So is she be... saying we got pooped on? The duty of parents rests upon you? The duty. Did you poop on me? The, the duty. I guess if it's the, I did not. Poop I guess on if you. it's the duty of parents rests upon me, then it's. <sighs> Rise to your level of uh, bathroom humor. Potty jokes. We cannot live at a higher level than the conception with which we form our place and use in life. Oh, conception. That means that means it's our parents' fault. And it's their parents' fault. Right. Right, so in this in this chapter we learn that it's all our parents' fault. Thank you for listening. Check us out at charlottemasonsays.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. If you want to get a hold of us, email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cmsays.